couple of weeks, you know that we are launching a new series today. And the new series is entitled, We Believe. And we'll open our time by looking at one of Jesus' prayers in John 17. It's perhaps his most famous prayer. It's one of my favorites anyways. And it really sort of nails the idea that we're foundationally going to begin discussing today. And so over these next weeks, I want us to spend some time looking at some of the main beliefs that we affirm in the Christian faith, and equally as importantly, why they matter in our lives. You know, belief, theology, doctrine, no matter what church background you come from, different groups of people have sort of talked about these ideas in different ways. But I want you to understand from our perspective that we believe the truths of God are meant to shape life. They cannot be disconnected from one another, those ideas. And then there are several truths that I want to deal with, stuff like what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus, what we believe about his church, and a host of other truths. And I want you to know that I've been thinking about this series about eight months ago is when I began, for a very long time. And somewhat ironically, the hardest part for me in this whole thing wasn't trying to determine what topics I wanted to teach on. That came somewhat naturally. It actually was trying to figure out how to title this series. That was the hardest thing. And I want to explain to you. The title of today's teaching, or the series, is We Believe. And the name of this message is We Believe That We Believe. And there's no pun intended in that. I'll explain it as we go through the morning. And this is because months ago, I I wrestled with whether or not I should title this series I Believe instead of We Believe. Now, I Believe would have been a fine title, right? But the more I prayed about this, the more I felt that it was important to make sure that we never forget. It's the key truth here. That even though our redemption in Jesus begins with our individual affirmation of Jesus, who he is and what he has done for us on the cross, we see that, we understand that with our minds and our hearts and we choose to follow him. That is completely an individual decision in the sense that we at some point have to deal directly with God on that. Important to know. But I also want us to know, equally as important, is that every step of that faith journey, including the moments that led us up to that point of belief, have likely And I actually want to be more forceful than the words have likely. It's pretty much guaranteed that they have been in the company of other Christians. And what I mean is, it is just about guaranteed that in our faith, in my faith, in your faith, our stories, the way we found Jesus, the way we have grown in Jesus, the way we have been impacted by Jesus, likely happened in large part by God working through other people in our lives. Folks like family members, uh, pastors, mentors, friends, Bible study people, folks you're serving with. The list there is endless, but it communicates a reality that God works through people in our lives. It's a major way that he does it. And so in other words, Christianity is a team-based faith. Our individual contribution deeply matters, but at the end of the day, we are on a much larger team. And the reason that we're talking about this today is because I don't ever want to just assume that everybody hearing what I'm talking about on a weekly basis just naturally understands this or even agrees with this, especially when we come to the the we side of the faith. In fact, it is indisputable at this point that there is an ever-growing trend right now in modern Christianity where some folks who profess faith in Jesus have come to believe the exact opposite of what we're talking about today. They adhere to this idea that they love Jesus, but they deeply believe that they don't need other Christians or God's church at all to follow Jesus. They believe following Jesus is something they do in a life vacuum, in a spiritual vacuum. And not too long ago, one of the great and upcoming world theologians said this publicly. It's a person who's impacted my life deeply. You might have heard of him. His name is Justin Bieber. And his... Took a minute to get that one, huh? His, his words will be behind me. In 2015, he gave an interview in Complex Magazine and talked about the very we subject we are talking about today. 
He said, when talking about the role of God's people, the church, in the life of a Christian, this. It'll be behind me. Follow along. He said, I think that going to church is fellowship. It's relationship. It's what we're here on the earth to do. To have this connection that you feel there's, there's no insecurities. I think that's where we need to be. And then he goes on to say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And this is the funny part of this. It's sort of interesting. If you go to Taco Bell, that doesn't make you a taco. Again, Justin Bieber, Complex Magazine, 2015. Now, now listen to me. If you all take away one thing from this today, I want it to be this. Please hear me. None of you are tacos, okay, at all. Uh, some of you might think you're a taco, but from this perspective, you, you are not. I want you to hear that. And that's a good thing because I really love tacos, and I might try to eat you in the foyer if that was the case, all right? It's, a tr- it's a, sort of an odd way to describe Christianity and the role of God's people in it, right? So the quote of here really reveals a significant and growing demographic, an idea in our culture that Christians have now, I'm speaking to the believers at this point, about the we role of God's people in their life today. While the essence of this quote is somewhat correct, that our salvation in Jesus isn't dependent on us going to church or being engaged in a church body, I mean, that's spot on. It sort of misses the foundational scriptural principle, the truth that we find all throughout the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, that God sort of redeems individuals into communities. We see this in the Old Testament, beginning from Abram. God sets him apart, makes him Abraham, and puts him in charge of a nation of God's people. And the principle is true in the modern church world. We are redeemed in Jesus individually, but set apart in these local communities called churches. And so the idea behind this is that once we've truly found Jesus, we should want to be around other people who love God and are striving towards the same end of becoming like Jesus. That is the part that's sort of out of order here and certainly in our world, at least in a great many areas. Point in case, last week I had a very brief but good conversation in the theater tunnel, that's what we call this little hallway right here, with someone from our church about this very subject, about how hard it was for me to determine a title for this series. And as we were talking, he said in his experience, solo Christianity, this is sort of a problem he's observed too. And it's created many issues. Like, for example, you have some people who are following Jesus without the role of Scripture in their life. And it's very hard to be on the same page with somebody who might profess the same love in the God that you have, but but really follows him in a very different way, like maybe Bible-less. And he went on to tell me that I should share this tension. Like, I shouldn't just let this go. I should sort of communicate to you all this week about the difficulty I had with just naming this series, and for good reason. And I said, that's a great idea. And that's exactly what I'm doing right now. So the more I got to thinking about that conversation as I was writing the sermon, the more I realized it truly was a a real providence from God because it further proved the need for the truth we are talking about today. That we are not meant to go it alone in the Christian faith. No matter where we are or where we're coming from, we are meant to be in a meaningful relationship with Jesus alongside other people who are also following Jesus. The benefits of that are immeasurable. And God designed it that way for a number of reasons. And so think about faith to a certain degree like a two-sided coin. What I mean is the relationship between our individual faith in Christ being lived out and applied with other Christians in everyday life, what we refer to as the church, it's like bone and marrow. You can separate bone and marrow, but neither bone or marrow is as effective without the other. Although people commonly separate them today, that's the problem. The challenge is God never meant them to be separated. Doing so severely impedes our ability to grow into the image of Jesus the way he desires us to. And that's the foundational truth of the gospel, is us being shaped into the image of Jesus, not us shaping uh, Jesus into our own image. Jesus is not nicknamed Jimmy. I just need you to know that, okay? (laughs) Sorry for that word faux pas. 
I really want you to think about this statement, especially at the end of our time this morning during communion when we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And so with this in mind, we're going to look at what Jesus says about this from his prayer in John 17, 20 through 21. And it's there we get this unique opportunity to listen to the way Jesus prays, to the way that he communicates to his Father in heaven about us on the night before he goes to the cross. His last prayer, we're going to look at it this week and next week, is a request for God to create a unity and a love in the hearts of his followers so real that it becomes an evidence to the world that Jesus is real. In other words, what we talk about today has eternal impact. The sort of we nature of the Christian faith that we will discuss today is one of the primary ways that God wants the world to see him. What we do matters. In other words, he prays for God to create the we in us. And that's why this is called We Believe. This truth is the foundation for this series, and it leads me to the only truth that I want to share with you this morning. It's a We Believe truth, and it is this. Each week we will address a We Believe. Here's the first one. We believe that true Christianity is rooted in learning to live for the we, not just the me. And we're going to balance this tension throughout this whole teaching, this series, about I and we. Okay? I and we. John 17, 20 through 21. Listen to the way Jesus prays. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And the message is the truth of the gospel through the disciples. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That is such a short set of verses with such a profound set of implications. I want to talk about them here for a few moments. So Jesus' language here is really addressing I or me-based Christianity. And this teaching flies directly in the face of a very popular brand of Christianity in North America. We just attempted to address it in a bit of a humorous way, but I want to be serious for a moment. It's what we have called in this place privatized Christianity. It's a Christianity that emphasizes God and me alone. It's the individual side of faith at the expense of the corporate side of faith, the, the we side. It's a Christianity that really is okay with solo or rogue Christianity. It might be a good way to describe it. And it's the kind of faith that says, you know, my relationship with God is solely a personal one. And so it really is none of your business what I do with God or what I think about life or how I live life or how I treat others. It says, when I signed up for Christianity... It was to get God, to get Christ, not, not really any of you, meaning like all of the other people that also make the same profession of faith and attempt to follow Jesus. And so what you tend to see here in this type of person is a, is a person who might get an occasional fix, an inspirational message on the weekend here and there, or maybe they have a lot of inputs in life, like maybe they're podcasting a lot of stuff or reading a lot of books. All that's really good. I'm not knocking that at all. I'm just saying the challenge is, when we consume truth about God, disconnected from people, it creates a bit of a problem. It, it tends to, you get put in a vacuum where you have no objective, objectivity, meaning there's nobody to speak into to an idea, to challenge an idea, to correct an idea. This is very important when we understand some of the truths we're talking about. Because, for example, there are lots of teachings in the Bible about grace and judgment and, and mercy, and most of us have default postures in these areas, meaning it does the world good to have the the folks who maybe are inclined more to be more judgmental in life, and by judgment, I don't mean that in the negative sense. I just mean they tend to think more critically and immediately know what they want to do and don't want to do. When you put a person that might be wired in that way with a person who's really kind of bathed in mercy, they challenge each other. And what happens is the rough edges of those sort of traits God puts in us, they are forced to cohabitate with other people, and they tend to balance over time, as opposed to maybe being sharpened in a vacuum. You know, judgment left unchecked is a problem, and mercy left unchecked can also be a problem, because it might even take advantage of the nature of the cross. 
And so this type of person, this brand of Christianity, is a convenient one because it gives a person all the perceived benefits of a relationship with God without any of the unnecessary baggage of having to be in meaningful and sacrificial relationships with other people like Jesus was. And the irony of this is this in it of itself. Jesus, his whole ministry, his whole life, is him inconveniencing himself for the betterment of other people. He leaves heaven to preach grace in the world. This is a, a plan B, not in God's plans, but a plan B meaning the comparison of sitting at the right hand of God in perfect unity and bliss as opposed to coming to the earth and being put on the cross. The nature of Jesus' whole life and ministry, the irony here, is that he's all about the we. He is about serving his Father, there is no question. His individual love for his God, for his Father, is, is resolute and profound. But that overflows in his care for people. And that's what makes this idea, I believe, period, right? Nothing else at the end of that. It makes it such a synthetic form of Christianity. It's plastic in its nature. I mean, it's rooted, right, this idea in a person receiving Jesus' sacrifice, recognizing the amazing volumes of, of grace and love and, and care and patience God shows us. It's rooted in a person being okay with receiving that stuff and then actually not at all desiring to show it to other people because it frustrates them to be around other people who are on that same faith journey. And so privatized Christianity has become a, a modern spirit of the age that some people have adopted and relabeled Christianity. I've talked to people who think this is Christianity, and you likely have too. This, I would say, the I portion is an element of Christianity, but there needs to be a very strong comma at the end of that. And the real problem with this is that it's the, excuse me, the antithesis of what Jesus prays for us in John 17. And so I'm in no way denying that there's an individual aspect to our faith. You know, when we choose to follow Jesus, that's a decision we have to make. When we choose to read the scripture, that's a decision we have to make. When we decide to pray or serve another, there is an individual decision we have to make there, without doubt. Those are things that should be in our personal lives. They should be weighty matters we think about and mull over. However, if we are doing those things, and some of those things cannot be done at all, if you're disconnected from meaningful relationships with others, then we have truly missed Jesus' mark. The foundation of what he prays for is the exact opposite of that. And so while privatizing life and faith like this is kind of popular in a highly individualistic culture like ours, it really is detrimental to our relationship and growth in God. If you think about it, at the very least, there's a we relationship in Christianity. It's us serving God. But what tends to happen in these I-based faiths is in a very sophisticated way over time, we figure out a way to make God serve us. In other words, there's going to be an I in your life. There's going to be a numero uno. And if we make self that, which is what the I-based faith does, then what happens is subliminally over time, God will be subordinated to our thoughts and ideas and our beliefs and our practices. That's what privatizing faith does. It never ends in a different way. Highly individualistic culture, highly individualistic faith at times, absolutely detrimental to our relationship and growth in God. And it's worth noting in this passage, all of the areas of Christianity that Jesus prays about for us to grow in, they're all brought about by being in community with other believers and God. In other words, everything he prays for is there's this like blurry line weaved through the whole thing about us and him and he and us and we and them and them and we. We're all unified in our love for God and each other. There's not an isolation from others. So just look at how Jesus describes how a Christian is supposed to live out their faith. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. It is for them to be in me. We're going to come back to this here in a quick moment. And me and them. 
and for them to be one with each other in the Lord's Prayer. Think about this. We talked about the, the Holy Spirit for three weeks, Jesus in us, them and me, me and them, in the Lord's Prayer. I taught this in my community group a few months back. It's interesting. We are commanded to pray our Father. It isn't that Jesus isn't my Father, or God isn't my Father, your Father. When Jesus talks about the way we communicate to God, he says, listen, your Father, he's our Father. There's a plurality in that. There's something important about these prayers, these instructions, these foundational truths that Jesus gives us to know how to communicate to God and each other. In verse 20, take it a step further. He prays way beyond the people he's talking to, his disciples. He starts praying for the future church, for those who would believe, he says, right? In the months, the years, centuries, and millennia to come. That's all of us in this room, and that's all the people that will follow us after we're no longer on this earth. He says, my prayer is they, us, the eternal church now, the capital C church, not Restoration Local or local churches all around the world. We are part of a much bigger church, the capital C church, the ecclesia in the Greek, the called out ones. That's what Jesus is talking about here. All of those who are in Christ, past, present, and future, would be unified in their love for me and each other. That's what he prays for. And this is why in just a few moments we're going to affirm that statement in the Apostles' Creed. We do this every month when we take communion. It says we are Christ's holy Christian church. That's what that means. And it's referring to all the followers of Jesus, past, present, and future. And so in John 17, if you want to know where we get that idea from in the creed, it's because Jesus prays for it right here. He prays for the church family global and eternal, of which every one of us in this room that is in Christ is, in a, part, is a part of. Now, I know what you might be thinking. If you've been with us here for some time, you're going to call me on a technicality. And you're going to say, I've recited the Apostles' Creed since 2010 here, and in every statement we say, I believe. And you are absolutely right, you smart aleck. We do say that, okay? We do say that. But I want to bring a bit of attention here. That I creed, right, is a creed we recite together. It's perhaps the most practical example of what we're talking about today. We confess this communally once a month together. And obviously we're praying that we confess this more than just once a month. It's at the top of our hearts and in our minds. But the idea is that that creed, has been passed down for centuries, modified in its form for sure, but passed down for centuries from God's people. And so when we recite it in this room together, we don't only do it with each other, we do it with the saints behind us. And for those in the tradition of us that choose to do it down the road, there will be people who will profess it together, one voice in that moment and one voice with our voice in the past. It's a beautiful thing. Each one of those truths must be personally owned in our hearts. I'm not denying that at all. That's the I believe part but we were never meant to possess them alone. We were meant to learn them and live for them with each other together. And so when you think about it that way, it's somewhat moving. It actually is the greatest example of community God wanted the world to see because it says Christ died so that we could have an eternal relationship with all believers, past, present, and future. I want you to think about what I'm about to say here. When I first got into ministry like 20 years ago, it was funny hearing how people described heaven. And in my early days, it was, it was common to hear people sort of describe heaven as like what they wanted it to be. And it was kind of fun to dialogue about. I heard a guy one time tell me that heaven was going to be him, true story, him flying around on a comet exploring the cosmos. That's what he wanted heaven to be. And in the younger days of my ministry, I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Like, maybe you could pick me up and I'll give you some comet gas money and we can explore together, right? It sounded really neat. But the more you study heaven in the scripture, it's, it's pretty refined, right, what heaven is going to be. And that was sort of a humorous but a really clear example of the individual nature of how we can even interpret some of the communal beliefs that God gives us. The, par the part of heaven, really the foundation of what makes heaven heaven, is that we're all going to be with each other, worshiping God together. 
That's literally what the Bible says heaven is. We will be in one voice when the world is broken and fallen no more with each other and God forever. Maybe there's comets. I don't know. I don't see it in the New Testament. But I know for sure we're going to be there, those of us in Jesus. Because eternity is not meant for us to be alone. It's meant to be us with each other and us with our Father. And this is why this is such a fundamental problem. It's why I'm teaching for two weeks on the word we, essentially, so that we don't miss this, because we'll miss everything else that comes out of this if we don't get this today, or at least begin to process it. While privatized Christianity has become popular in the world, in our culture, and even in the church, it has not and will never be popular with God, because it is an incredible threat to the love and the unity he's praying for us to have here. And so logically and theologically, it's impossible to be unified in our love for each other while practicing a private Christianity only concerned with me or I. This is why in verse 21, Jesus prays we would love each other the same way he and his father love each other. And he lays out these these Christian relational rules of engagement. He says our relationships with each other, the we, are literally patterned, this is a bit of a mind bender here, after his relationship with his father. And what he's doing here is talking about the Holy Trinity. And anytime we talk about the root of community in this room, we talk about this idea. It's not the only place he does this. He's using the doctrine of God's Holy Trinity to show us what this kind of we love is supposed to look like. And in the Trinity, if you're a Bible theologian, you know this. If not, work with us here. It's important to be thinking about this. In the Trinity, we see there is one God who exists in three diverse persons. We just sang that. And there are three diverse persons who are in one God. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They each have a deep and indivisible unified love for each other. For all of eternity, they have delighted and longed to be in each other's perfect presence. It's a relationship rooted in humble love and mutual submission towards a common cause or a common end. And that end is to make the name of God known through the Son of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. They are all distinct individuals. They each have a different role and responsibility. Yet for as unique and diverse as they are, they are still one unified in their love for each other and their mission of redemption. This idea of unity and diversity is meant to permeate every element of the Christian faith, whether it be generational or race or geography, whatever it is. What a verse like this is teaching us is that all of that stuff in the kingdom of God and God's economy is meant to fade away because the tie that binds all of us, no matter who we are or where we're coming from, when we are in Jesus, is the name of Jesus. That is how we can be unified in our diversity. God loves diversity. He made the world this way. But diversity was never meant to lead to to fragmentation or disunity. Diversity like this was meant to be sort of celebrated in a common voice before God, our Father. That same love and cause that they share with each other is meant to be our love and cause. In the Trinity, we have such a rich example of unity and diversity in God's kingdom. And what's happening here is Jesus calls us to strive for the same type of we, love and devotion towards each other. In other places, the scripture calls us one body with many members, okay? We have the analogy of Jesus' bride, singular, we're all wedded to him. All of these ideas about us are unified in a common entity, deep individualism, deep diversity, but meant to be sort of practiced in the context of a unity. And so if you are a student of the Bible, you know all the metaphors about God's people describe the church in this way. You won't find anything to the contrary. And that's why I say this is a bone and marrow idea. There is an I and a we, a me and a we, for sure. But they are meant to be inseparable. They were never meant to be parsed out. They were meant to be unified. 
And I think the reason some folks reject the me, we teaching that we're talking about today, Jesus' prayer, it's kind of an obvious one. And I alluded to it in the very opening moments of our, our uh, conversation today. Living like this, you know, when I pen this, I put can be hard. I think it's just fair to say living like this will be hard and selfless work. But it is worth it because it deepens your understanding of how Jesus loves you. It's fair to say striving for a selfless love like the one we're talking about today is a bit unnatural in a fallen world because in a fallen world, we still wrestle with sin. And at the root of all sin is disunity. It's a broken relationship. You think about this. The root of the first sin in the garden is when people choose to trade the oneness they have with God for strife and rampant individualism. If you want to summarize the garden, it sort of goes like this. Humanity looked at God and said, "Uh, nope, I know what's better for me. That tree is where it's at, and I'm going to spend some time over there. God lays a way for unity. He lays a way for there to be a, a, a relationship that is never fractured or broken. And pretty much at the first moment, there's an opportunity. People walk away from God. They pursue an individual faith at that moment. And we know the faith they were looking for, there was knowledge. Somewhat ironically, to be like God. That's the profession that's made. You know, the I, the, the numero uno has trumped God. I will have knowledge and I will be like God. That's a common plight throughout the scripture. So think about this, right? In that moment, humanity chooses to trade the perfect oneness we have with God in the garden for individualism. And that me-based faith story has been repeating itself in the life of God's people ever since. It's It's a foundational struggle for sure. In our lives, it's undoubtable that we all have sort of metaphorical trees. We've got things in our life that call our name every day and ask us to walk away from God. They ask us to follow ourselves. That is the God of the world we live in today. The zeitgeist of the North American Christian is the God of self. We are sort of enticed on a regular basis to to walk away from the amazing communion that God offers us in Jesus. And at times we trade that for self. And that's why it's so important to know God values the self. Don't hear me sort of undermining our individual the individual affection God has for us. It's super important to know, though, that if we are disconnected from other people who encourage us and shepherd us to keep fighting the good fight of faith, it's fair to say our odds of misbalancing the me over the we greatly increase. It's kind of ironic. For about eight months, I tried to figure out how to title this sermon series, and then like in two minutes on a Sunday morning, somebody clarified it for me immediately. It's a beautiful thing. Individualism like this, okay, is why Jesus prays for God to give us unity. And the events in the garden show us when people are given the chance between corporate unity and love or individual satisfaction most, I'm not going to say all, I can't make a a sort of a a declarative statement like that, but I think it's pretty fair to say the story of the Bible is most will choose the me over the we. When Adam did it, it immediately broke the relationship with God and then caused a deep division in the human relationship he and Eve shared. It's the beginning of I-based faith. And that episode, that one we read about in Genesis, is the root of all human conflict today. It's the preservation of self over the benefit of the, the, of the body, whatever that body is. And even mature Christians are prone to wander in this area. That is why, in God's grace, Jesus prays for us in this area. Please don't hear this as a hard-edged end to the message, because we're about done. Please hear this as, in God's goodness, thousands of years ago, he began praying this prayer for us, and is still praying this prayer for us in heaven today. These are timeless truths. They don't go away. So the desire Jesus has for us in John 17 is still the desire he has for us as he sits at the session right now, at the right hand of God. He didn't pray this and move on. They are watching us and for us and advocating for us. God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's good to know that, again, we are not alone here. It's worth noting that the same prayer Jesus predicts, it's kind of interesting here, the same prayer Jesus predicts the future growth of the church in, he prays this, and then he immediately prays for them 
them, us, to be unified for it to happen. That's sort of the foundation of the way it gets done. And so as, as we close, I want to share a quote from you with a pretty influential book. Not just in my life, it's shaped the rhythms of our church, and I'm working through several of our leaders with it right now. It's a quote from a book called Total Church. There have been a handful of resources in life that have sort of you know, rocked my thoughts on the Christian church and God's work in the world through it. This is perhaps the one that's at the top of the list. It's a book written by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis called Total Church, and it's a book well worth reading, even if you aren't in leadership. It's one worth picking up, because what it does is it begins to chronicle the elements of a New Testament church. It talks about what makes a church a church, and in a chapter dealing with the challenges of creating true Christ-centered community and unity in a culture often obsessed with privatizing religion and individualism, they wrote this. I'll read it slowly. It'll be behind me. They say, by becoming a Christian, the individual part here, by becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. That's the community element of our church. It is not just that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church. My being in Christ also means being in Christ with all others who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. And what they're talking about here, this is the doctrine of ecclesiology. It's how we understand the church to be what the church is. What they're saying is, is when you are in Jesus, when that happens, you are automatically grafted into the church, capital C. You might not be going to one or partnered with one, but according to the beliefs and the truths of the Bible, when you are in Jesus, you are immediately a part of that cosmic C church, past, present, and future. And that's why they say, this is my identity, our identity. You are part of the church. Here's the interesting part of this quote. To fail to live out our corporate identity in Christ is analogous to the act of adultery. We can be Christian and do it. It's the taco idea we talked about. We can be Christian and do it, but it is not what Christians should do. The loyalties of the new community supersede even the loyalties of biology. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should live not as disembodied Christians. The church, especially ours, is a kitchen table. And what I want to say is that the people you love, you spend time at the table with. And so what the author is saying here, what Jesus is praying for, and what I'm trying to communicate today is that if we're okay with sort of looking at a God in heaven, but we don't want to sit at the table with his people, it communicates something potentially very unhealthy about our understanding of what God desires for his people. What these authors are saying is the reason we should want to understand and apply this me, we truth in our lives is because Jesus connects a deep significance to it. He says our love and our unity for each other is meant to be a direct reflection of God's love for Jesus. And you'll be hard-pressed to find God's blessing where this type of love is lacking. And I am thankful that, it, get, don't get me wrong, it's not been perfect, but in very meaningful ways, this has been the narrative of our church. Through ups and downs, through hardships, through challenges, it's been a beautiful thing to see this sort of, I like to tell our leaders it's the invisible stickiness, it's the glue that binds, and that is the presence of Jesus permeating the work of our church and our people. I also want to say one very brief thing before we close here. I want to say that you're going to be really hard-pressed to fully experience these truths. Essentially, I'm doing a series on theology. There's no secret here. But you're going to be very hard-pressed to fully experience the theological truths we'll look at over these next weeks if you listen to them and try to flesh them out in a life vacuum. They're not meant to be solely individual truths. They're meant to be our truths we profess, or at least we desire to profess, and we live them out in community. If you wrestle with them, community is the way you figure them out. It's one of the ways you can find that other people likely have challenges in these areas and have struggled with the same things. 
The I feeds the we, and the we feeds the I. So as we move to the communion table, a rather fitting step based on what we've talked about today. Remember, Jesus says, do this. All of us do this in remembrance of him. Let this me, we truth seep into your heart. Let the union of love you share with Jesus, the one we're about to celebrate here in a moment, be the catalyst that produces a love for you, for, uh, in you, for others. Unlike any other in this world, let his sacrifice and his love be where you find your identity. There is no greater blessing in this life than to be considered a child of God. It's an amazing privilege. It's an identity that is unassailable. It cannot be taken from you. It cannot be robbed from you. It can't be because once God has put it on your heart, once you dwell in that, it is forever. And so ask yourself, what is Jesus saying to you about the we? What is he saying to you about your individual faith in him and its connection to the church family? The very nature of what we discuss in these weeks and months that follow what I'm talking about today, it is essential to have an understanding about this. And I want you to know that if there are things you have questions about, use those cards to let us know that. You can call us during the week. You can email us. You can find me or somebody else here. We want to do our best to help you grab this in whatever way God is leading you to understand it. What is it Jesus is saying to you about your life and his church family, the we, and what is it you're going to do about it?